What is up, P7 family? Thank you so much for joining us for this P7 podcast. We're excited that you're here hanging out with us. The goal of this podcast is to, yes, inform you. We want to bring things that you can do in your P7 club to grow your P7 club or perhaps grow you as a leader. But ultimately, we want to inspire you through God's word because we know through his word and his spirit, we can be transformed. So grab a pen, grab some paper, or grab your phone and open up the notes section. Write some things down. We know that it's going to help you. Let's dive in. Thank you so much for this call. Thank you for every person that has gathered around North America to join in tonight on a Monday night. God, to be re-energized, to be encouraged, and to go out and make a difference and make disciples in this lost world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. And so tonight we are privileged to have with us uh, Brother Ryan Dean. Um, Brother Ryan Dean is the pastor, the senior pastor of the Pentecostals of Bossier City in Louisiana, and he's got a really busy schedule, and so it is such an honor that he would make time out of his schedule to speak to us tonight, and so Brother Ryan Dean, thank you so much, sir. The floor is yours, and we'll have Q&A with him after in the chat, so get ready, guys. It's going to be great. Yeah, thank you, thank you Brother Romani. Uh, just to reiterate, if if you guys think of any questions anytime along the way, if you already have some, don't forget those. My favorite part of most of these things is always the Q&A. But um, let me give a two quick shout outs really quickly. First of all, Brother Amani, y'all have no idea. This, if, you don't, if you're not from Canada, if you're not from Ontario, you don't have a clue. This guy is amazing. We are sanctified, proud of Brother Amani. And uh, the, only, the only thing that I have ought against you is um, that that color of blue that you have on tonight is closely associated with Manchester City. Right here. There we go. There, that's what you should be paying attention to. Kobe is in the chat right now. Kylie, how many people are uh, in your uh, P7 club? Kylie's family. 45. It, only a few weeks ago, they sent a picture and uh, there was like 32, 30, something like Good grief. Look, uh, Kylie comes from an amazing family. We love them to pieces, but watching what she is doing with her friends has been unbelievable. And every single, uh, hey, no, we're celebrating the other one, Leah, as well. My goodness, shout it out. Um, but yeah, no, I'm just, I'm celebrating her because look, we had so, we had so much difficulty in the early days. We tried to start a P7 club in our local high school that's right across uh, the street from our church. And the principal kept shooting it down and shooting it down and shooting it down. It was very discouraging. But then all of a sudden, it was a few years later, Kylie and a few of her friends, they start this P7 club and it's growing so rapidly. Don't be discouraged in the early days of these things because you're going to see God work. And uh, P7 clubs have been working. It's a fantastic ministry. Uh, absolutely put your heart and soul into it. I believe it. Uh, Brother Amani asked me to speak tonight on the issue of comparison. And for many of you, especially, I think it's especially pertinent to this group because some of you just saw those numbers 45 and 65 in these other P7 groups. And it probably makes you feel like, oh my goodness, I, I don't even want to type in the number that have come to ours yet because we're just, we're so much lower. Hey, don't, don't do that. We're going to get past that tonight. I hope helps you a little bit. So uh, I'm going to start off by speaking from Matthew uh, chapter 20 and verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came with Jesus, came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And know this, this is James and John. So James and John, Jesus himself eventually calls them the sons of thunder, which I've, I've used this joke before and it's never landed. So I'm just going to try it again just to see. I, you know, I'm gonna, I can't see your faces anyways. But uh, Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. It sounds like a 19, like, 80s or 90s like WWF tag team at this point the Sons of Thunder is one of the best nicknames that any group of two people have ever been given in their life sorry WWE I'm very old and uh it's one of it's one of the coolest nicknames but these guys they had their mom go up to Jesus and she said to him command it in your kingdom <laughs> she's telling Jesus you do this command it in your kingdom that these two sons of mine might sit one on your right 
and one on your left. She's wanting her two boys to be on the right and left hand of Jesus. And I'm not going to I'm not going to read all of Jesus response in its entirety. You can read it later if you'd like. But he just kind of slaps them around a little bit and says, you don't even have a clue as to what you're asking for. But what happened after that is the disciples in verse 24, it says, and hearing this, the 10, the other guys, they became indignant with the two brothers. Because if there's anything that you'll find in the scripture with the gospels, and oftentimes it's kind of subtle, you have to read in between the lines at some of the disciples' behavior. There was a comparison issue even between the disciples, even between the people that worked in the kingdom in these early days. There was always an issue with comparison. And in this story, what makes James and what makes James and John's situation worse is that they got, I don't know if they got their mother involved or if they had an involved mother. And there's a difference. You guys know some of y'all have an involved mother. So if, if that's a few of you on the call, just wave your hand. You know, like if you have a mom that's in it, there you go. <laughs> if you have a mom that's an involved mom, you know, they're the one that's coming up to the workplace and like telling your boss that your boy deserves a promotion. You know, it, this, it's, it's an embarrassing thing. Luckily, I did. My mom was involved, but our family, I grew up in a pastor's home and we were always like, don't give us any special attention because of the pastor's kid, because we didn't want it. But there are some involved mothers that they will go to bat for their kids. This was them. The comparisons, that's one of the places where it's kind of obvious, but it didn't stop there with the disciples. It's all throughout the gospels and even in the epistles a bit. But Simon Peter, he wound up later with kind of a cross-continent rivalry with the Apostle Paul. There was a great distinction between their churches, great distinction between the Jewish and the Gentile early Christian churches, completely different. And uh, you see some of the fighting that took place. Paul just downright gets rowdy with some of his letters concerning Peter. But in John's gospel, he you can see this even in him, the disciple that Jesus loved. You see it in his gospel in John 20 and 1. It says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. While it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. He had to point out that he had some sort of special relationship with Jesus. This time he wasn't getting his mom to do his dirty work for him. He was actually saying himself, wrote it down in the eternal word of God that I was the disciple that Jesus loved. The Simon Peter had his own situation, whatever. But Simon Peter and the other disciple, the other disciple calls himself for a moment in a little brief moment of humility. They were going to the tomb. They were running together. And then he reiterates, John says it again, the other disciple, false humility, ran ahead faster than Peter. And he came to the tomb first. What scholars often tell us is that John was probably one of the youngest disciples. So I don't know if it was just age or if it was because John was actually an athlete, but he made sure that everybody knew for eternity that he got to the tomb faster than Peter. And so it says, and so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, he says it again. He says it over and over and over again in this brief period of scripture. It says, so the other disciple who first, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered. There's this little hint of rivalry in almost everything that the disciples did. There's this little hint of rivalry. And I can imagine because if you've ever had a group of, uh, especially look, girls roll their eyes at this, I know. But if you get a group of guys around and if they're friends, they will rip each other to pieces. They will dig up every little bit of your history that you're going to find embarrassing. And they're going to put it before God and everybody. And so you can imagine what this must have been like. If, if Peter, I don't know if now Peter probably uh, was too distant, maybe being passed away. I don't, even, I don't remember exactly when the gospel of John was written in relation to his life, but I, I can imagine that if he got wind of this and if he read John chapter 20, Peter would say, well, at least one of us actually went into the tomb because you might've got there first, but you were too scared to go inside. The, the disciple that Jesus loved was too scared to actually go inside the tomb. There was this comparison between the disciples, not just between them, but all throughout the word of God. You find that the people that are in those pages are just as human as you and I. The people that are in the word of God, they are just as human as all of us. And I would say, especially at the stage of life that many of you are in, you are in a prime time, a prime time comparison mode, not because of anything that you're intentionally doing. But this is about as broad as your social net is ever going to be in your life. And what you see all around you is every type of person, 
every personality, every skill, every ability, everything that you see that you desire in yourself, you're going to find somebody around you with that quality. It happens. And if you're trying to lead a P7 club, you're probably in, in this ministry vein. And so you're, you're getting started in ministry. And what happens in the early days of ministry is you're sitting there, you might be in a pew somewhere, and there might be somebody 10, 15 years older than you are, and they're up behind the pulpit, and they're preaching, and you don't want to admit it. But in the back of your mind, you're like, I wonder how I'm going to be when I'm there. Or I wonder if I'm going to get the opportunity. You might be like the sectional youth rally or something and say, I wonder if anybody's ever going to ask me to do this. And the Bible says that any man that desires the office of a bishop, for him, it's a good thing. So it's not a bad thing to desire these spiritual gifts. You need to desire these spiritual gifts. However, if you look at it and you say, I'm angry because I'm not there yet, you've got to take a step back. Because I remember looking, I wasn't angry necessarily, but I remember in the early days of, of youth ministry for me, I was a youth pastor for 15 years. In the early days of youth ministry, I, I was an, I'm an introvert by nature. I'm not a talkative person. I don't use that as a stamp of pride. It's just a fact. It's, it's part of the nature, right? And so I'm an introvert. I'm not the youth pastor that everybody sees that has a huge personality and they get on, uh, they, they do an Instagram video and you look at them and they're so pumped up about everything and they're punching holes in the air as they give you an announcement for something you're doing at a skating rink later in the weekend. I don't know. Like it's, it doesn't matter what it is. They're so pumped up about it that it's, it's, it, I don't know if it's endearing or if it's psychotic, but I wasn't that guy. So I'm sitting there and everybody that ever spoke at a camp, everybody that ever spoke at a camp was that guy in my head. And I'm like, well, you know what? That's fine. That's not me. That's not me. So I'm not going to get those opportunities. I'm going to make peace with that. And just kind of, that was all comparison. But it, if I'm honest, in the back of my mind, there was a hint, there was a hint of envy there. And that envy was actually a dissatisfaction of what I was not or what I thought that I could never be. And what happens in ministry, there will always be a minister that has some quality that you admire. And that is a very dangerous place to be if you don't speak it, if it's in the back of your mind, and if you don't reconcile your giftings with that desire. God is going to build you up. If you're pursuing ministry, God will absolutely build you up. You're going to see it happen in your life. God is going to use P7 to instill ministerial principles that are going to guide you for the rest of your life. You're going to learn some incredible lessons in this. But in the back of your mind, there will always be something that you realize that you are not. That's a dangerous place to live if we just sit there. We've got to be used in the way that God has ordained for us. Envy will eat us up from the inside. But envy starts with comparison. Comparison, it's not the end of the story. It starts with comparison. And when you compare just enough, you're going to start seeing the things that you're not. And that's when it builds up into envy or things that you don't have that other people were given. There might be somebody that's in a more privileged position. There might be somebody that has a free life that you don't have. And you say, well, they've got a head start in front of me. That, that comparison starts to become envy if we let it grow out of control. Comparison has one of two outcomes. Either you can use it as kind of a bar to say that I need to get. And if you look and you see something that it matches up with some of your giftings that you're wanting to build on, you see that marker in the distance and you say, that's my goal. A goal is different. A goal is completely different. That's admirable. But the other outcome is that you look at it and you see everything that you are not. You see everything that you potentially will never be in your own mind. And you see, this is where it gets dangerous. You see what you feel that you deserve. Be very careful about considering what you think you deserve in ministry. Don't do that. If you start thinking about what you deserve, you're getting away from the very basic tenets of Christianity, which is none of us have earned this. None of us. There is nothing within us that we did, that we earned all this. No, 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 that, that's, that's not it. You've got to back away from that. Let me just throw up a quick warning. Considering what we deserve is a very dangerous place to be. When you start thinking about what you deserve, what human beings are really, we're not great at assessing ourselves from the outside. 
because we know our inner thoughts and we know our motives. We think usually we have an idea of our thought process. And so we know how we're getting to a certain place. So we look at ourselves from the inside and we think everybody else sees that. Not everybody else sees that. Everybody else sees what we are from a completely different perspective, sometimes seeing what we do not do. But we think, you know, I know my mind. I put in, I'm trying to trying to phrase this just right because I don't want you to get confused. A lot of times we think that we deserve something because we feel better than maybe we think people perceive us as being. It's it's human nature. It's what we do because we know our inner workings and our inner thoughts. And so we want to mold the world around us based on that. But one of the symptoms, one of the symptoms of narcissistic personality disorder, I'm not just talking about people that are a little arrogant. I'm talking about the actual disorder. One of the prime symptoms that you can recognize is thinking that you deserve more than you have. People with that personality disorder, they are obsessed with what they feel that they deserve. But in the long run, look, I I said it already, but a lot of people, you'll look around you. Some people have an advantage that you might not have. That's going to be the case, no matter what your predicament, no matter what your station, no matter what your family life, no matter what, some people are going to have a leg up. They're going to have a leg up on you. It's just the way that life works. But in the long run, we're talking about the marathon. We're not talking about the hundred yard dash. In the long run, we usually wind up earning something far closer to what our lives, what our behavior, what our discipline deserves. Psychologists have linked envy with high rates of interpersonal conflict low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, aggressiveness, and even criminal behavior as minor as vandalism and as major as murder. They see envy in so many of these problems. And one study that I read today, it found that many, but not everyone who is depressed suffers from envy. Not everybody, but most people, uh, I don't even think it said most, it said a good number of people who uh, are depressed suffer from envy. But what they did find in the same study is that envy is a marker that very accurately predicts depression. If you have envy, you're going to wind up depressed. You might be depressed and it might just be all within you and you're not looking at anybody else. But if you have envy, it's going to lead you to a dark place. Every uh, few years, I get obsessed with a particular Bible topic. And one year it was all about, it was all about Saul and David. And for some reason, I got really locked in on trying to figure out what are the differences within Saul and David that, that made their lives so different? Because Saul should have had it all. If you look on the outside, Saul should have had everything. But, you know, David steps in. David's the one that challenges Goliath. Saul was hiding in his tent. He wasn't doing anything. He was cowering in the shadows, even though he was a giant among his own people. The Bible says that Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else. During those, I don't know, people were shorter and in the past. So I don't know, maybe, maybe the average man in Israel is like five foot two and Saul's out here. He's like, you good five foot 11 and everybody's looking up to him. But then there's a giant across the way. You have Goliath standing, not just head and shoulders above her. He's towering over. He's twice as tall as Saul is. And so Saul says, you know, I'm not, I'm not taking any part in that. So he's stepping back. He's stepping back. Um, my wife is texting me right now and saying, whatever you're doing is getting louder and louder. I must be getting excited and tapping my feet on the stairs or I, I've got uh, the downstairs below my feet. So I guess I'm tap dancing. But um, Saul, you know, he, he steps back. But in 1 Samuel 18 and 6, I'm going to pick up in the story and I'll, I'll jump ahead. So I'll stop yammering. It happened as they were coming. When David returned from killing the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel. This is after David slays Goliath and everybody's happy. Everybody's celebrating. And they were singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul became very angry for this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. But to me, they have ascribed thousands and like, well, kind of ducked away from the giant. Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? So he said, look, now he's got the admiration of everybody everybody's looking at this guy as the guy. The only thing left for him to have is my throne. And so he became very protective. And it says that Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Saul saw within David everything that he was not. Or let's let's put it this way. He saw within David everything that Saul should have been. He looked at David and he said, you know what? He, he thought he's just comparing himself and saying, I oh, look, everybody's celebrating David. No, no, no. What the problem was is Saul saw what he should have been. 
Saul was standing head and shoulders taller than everybody. He was built. He was handsome. He looked like a leader, but Saul was a coward. He was disobedient to the prophet of God. He ignored God's instructions. And now we look at Saul today. And every time you hear Saul mentioned in a sermon, pretty much everybody that, that talks about Saul at all, they're using him as a negative. They're not celebrating Saul. It is very rare that you hear Saul mentioned in a positive light. There was a, um, there's a book. Don't worry. This is not a sports analogy because my wife always tells me, look, half the people do not care about sports at all. And so I said, okay, this is not a sports analogy. However, a few years ago, there was a book that became very popular and I think it was eventually turned into a movie. I read this book. It was uh, on the New York times bestseller list and everybody thought that I like sports. I wanted to read about it. The book's called Moneyball and Moneyball was about this, this general manager of a team. He was responsible for the players, for the salaries, for bringing people in and bringing people out. He was responsible for all that. And his name was Billy Bean. And he looked the part because he used to be a baseball player. He was he was a guy with the broad shoulders, with the massive forearms. Uh, he looked like he could hit home runs, even though he really could. He looked the part. And so what happened was when he was when he was young and teams were looking to try to draft him, um, they all sent out scouts to look at Billy Bean. And everybody said, this guy's going to be the next big thing. He's incredible. This guy's going to be it. He, he runs out in the outfield and just his stride alone, he, he looks powerful. He looks fast. Everything about him seemed to check all the boxes. And so everybody said, you know, we need to draft this guy. They drafted him and he was a failure. He was the most mediocre below average player that anybody had ever seen. Nobody, nobody was impressed by Billy Bean anymore. But when they looked at him, they said, it doesn't make any sense. He looks the part. He should be everything that we hoped he would be, but he's not. He looked the part, but he he figured something out through that story. He he was ashamed. He was humiliated. He tried to get better. He just he had limitations that he couldn't get over. He figured out and he took the lesson and said, you know what? I, I understand better than most people. Now, looks are deceiving. The comparisons that everybody was making with me and they were overlooking other players. It was deceiving. Something was missing here. So what happened was his failures as a player predicted his success as a general manager because he looked out at players and everybody said, this player's fantastic. He said, no, no, they look good, but they don't have it. They look the part and everybody wants that person, but that, that, that player doesn't have it. Look at the numbers, look at the results, look at what is actually happening underneath the surface. That player doesn't have it. And because of that, he completely changed the sport because he figured out that it does not matter what a player looks like. It matters what's going on that you can, you, you can see the results happening, even if nobody else is impressed by the person. If results are taking place, it matters, it works. And he became an absolute um, phenomenon. He changed everything. And now everybody tries to do things the way that he does because he figured out his failures predicted his success. Instead of looking around and saying, you know what? Maybe baseball isn't for me. He looked and said, I'm going to take the lessons that I've learned now, and I'm, I'm going to become a legend in my own right. It's not doing what I thought that it was going to be, but I'm using the gifts that I do have with the lessons that I've learned, and I'm turning them into something great. When God decided that he was done with Saul, everybody was impressed with the way Saul looked. When God decided he was done with him, he sent Samuel to go anoint the next king of Israel. Samuel gets uh, directed to the house of Jesse, and in 1 Samuel 16 and 6, it says, when they entered, he, he being Samuel, looked at Eliab, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or the height of his stature. Because Again, this is another tall guy. This is another head and shoulders guy, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Even though the last guy, you know, Saul is the last guy at this point, the tall, handsome guy. Even though he turned out to be a complete disaster, the first impulse that Samuel had when he saw Eliab was, this is the guy. He didn't learn anything. He was still comparing like everybody else did. It wasn't it. But God said, don't, don't, don't look at all that. Don't, don't look at how tall he is. I've, I've dealt with tall guys before. And if there's any tall guys in the chat, I'm so sorry. It's okay. You can, you can be great for God too. You don't have to be a Saul. But he, he said, that's not it. I'm looking at the heart. And so Samuel's looking around and he, he asked Jesse, is there not anybody else? Because God's putting this, this, putting a stop sign in front of me right now. Do you not have any other kids? And they said, no, we got one more. We got the youngest one. He's out, he's out tending to the sheep. He's, he's the guy that smells like the animals. He, we, 
throw him out there and apparently like wrestles with animals and everything. We don't, we don't know what he does. Him, nobody cares. There's a lot of speculation among scholars that he was an illegitimate child. Nobody, uh, I've, I've not seen anybody prove that for sure, but David was just cast aside. But then in verse number 13, it says, then Samuel took the horn of oil. When he saw David, God's like, this is it. He sees David. He took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, in the midst of all the people that everybody else said it should have been the one. In their midst, he pours that oil upon David. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Everybody else was looking and said, Saul's the one. But God said, no, no, I, I know that guy's heart. I know his heart. Even Samuel, the prophet of God said, this is the one. It's Eliab. God said, I know his heart too. That's not it. Go out and find the ruddy faced one. The one that looks like he's been working outside. The one that does not seem to have it all together. Because that's the one that has been singing to me when it's just me and him. He wasn't singing in a church service. David wasn't singing in the temple. He was singing in the fields and the pastures by himself with the sheep. Nobody else around. And God said, I can't do anything with all the stuff that everybody else sees and values. But I can do something with that heart. Don't look at yourself and see everything that you were not. Develop your heart. And God will build everything else about you up into the ministry that he wants to propel you in. Some of you have giftings that you do not admire. But when the anointing of God is combined with those giftings, you're going to realize why God gave them to you. You might say, I'm not the big, I'm not the big, huge personality. And well, hey, it doesn't, doesn't matter. God's going to take that depth. The old saying is that still waters run deep. God is going to take that depth and build you up into this this probably a prophetic type of ministry. You don't know yet, but you're not going to see until you combine that anointing with that heart. If you're somebody that does have that big bombastic personality and you say, well, you know, I'm not as analytical as so-and-so, you don't have to be. God's going to use that personality to spread the gospel in a way that somebody that's maybe a little bit more like me, maybe that's not their gifting, but you're going to blanket your community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's going to take whatever that gift is and build it. Years ago, we tried we tried to uh, kind of figure out the personality thing. And what happened was there was this old personality book that everybody read. And I think it was mostly in like the early 90s. And so it kind of took hold. And there were only four personality types. There were four personality types. And the personality types were sanguine, choleric, phlegmatic, and melancholy. And everybody was like, uh, you know, sorry, I got distracted there for a second. Everybody said, you know, I'm one of these four personalities or maybe a little combination of the four. And, you know, you look at that, you're like, there's not just four personalities. There's a lot more personalities than that. And so then the Myers-Briggs test comes around and there's 16 different personalities. And, you know, you read that and you're like, I don't know. I've met some people that, that don't even fall in line with all these. We're trying to figure out what makes us us. But what you found is that in a culture that is obsessed with identity, in a culture that is obsessed with not just who you are as a person, but identity across, you got to have your social identity. You have to have your gender identity. You have to have your, your spiritual identity that's different from everybody. Instead of focusing on this identity, we need to be focusing on the identity that comes when we take on the name of Jesus. Because when that anointed, when that anointed call of God combines with your life and your talents, that's when you're going to see yourself become a king a queen anointed by God to do something right. But it's only when that heart combines with that anointing. I'm going to close with this. First Corinthians four and three. There's a passage where Paul talks to the church. And he says, you're comparing yourselves with this and that you're saying who baptized who it doesn't matter. He closed it. I'll close it. Says, uh, but with me, first Corinthians four and verse three, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you. Or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own heart, for I know nothing by myself. Yet, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Do not compare yourself based upon what others might think. Do not compare yourself based even what you might think about yourself. Compare yourself based upon the word of God and what he thinks about you. And what you're going to find if you break away from the comparison trap, what you're going to find is that his thoughts towards you 
are greater than the stars in the heaven, the sands of all the seas. What you're going to find is that God has an anointing waiting for a willing heart. Can I, Brother Amani, is it, do you want me to close with prayer? Or do you want to continue here? Is it okay if I pray for a second? God, I know that you have a calling. I know that you have an anointing for every single young person that's on this call. The reason they're on this call is because they have a hunger to see the gospel spread among your kingdom. God, they want to reach their communities, their schools, their neighborhoods. I know they want this desperately, but God, what I want right now is for you to speak to every individual heart for you to wrap them up in your loving arms and say, I've got a plan and a purpose that you do not see. Do not get distracted. Don't get worried about what people are perceiving about you. Don't get worried about what people think of this club or people think of your ministry or what you're doing or your person. I don't get wrapped up in any of that. God, I pray that you would help them build upon the anointing that you have placed specifically on their lives, God. You have created every single one of them. They are fearfully and wonderfully made. So God, I pray that you would use the anointing that is specific for them and let them walk in it with confidence, with boldness, but God, with, with discipline and with commitment. I pray, Father, that you would lift every single one of them up. These end times, these last days, God, you need them desperately. We need you, Father. And right now I feel your anointing calling them and saying, I need you as well. God, we want to be willing, just as the Apostle Paul said, to spend and to be spent for the sake of your kingdom. God, I pray that you would put a unique anointing on every single one of these young people. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, let it be done, God, according to your word. Amen. 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 Wow. I hope someone was listening to the powerful words that have been said tonight, especially the insights there on David uh, about while everybody didn't see it, there was a little boy that God was forming in private and he had a heart after God and while Saul was focused on what he didn't have like I, oh you know we were so consumed it's so amazing you brought that up about personalities and not that obviously nothing wrong but so consumed on ourselves and and, and what we don't have or what we could be and we, we we neglect what God has placed inside of us and just being with him thank you so much for speaking that was amazing thank you so much brother thank Dean um, we're gonna have Q&A um, anybody, if you got any questions, there was a question that was submitted earlier on tonight um, that we will jump to first, and then uh, we can keep going with more questions. So you got any questions for Brother Dean, type them in the chat and let's do it. So here was a question earlier on. It said, what do I do if my youth leaders don't think I'm ready to start a P7 club in my school? Your youth leader is given to you to help administer your life. And it, one thing that I found out is that um, your motivations are absolutely, I, I don't doubt your motivations whatsoever, if that's the case. Um, however, your youth pastor is, uh, he's working under the authority of your pastor. Therefore, they're an extension of your pastor. If they say you're not ready yet, they see something that they're protecting. They're not, they're not trying to tear you down. They see something within you maybe that they're trying to protect until the time comes. You have to do it under their umbrella of authority. If you, if you try to step out too early, um, I think that we're getting away from God's authority. And I, I know right now, um, be careful here. I know that not every relationship is perfect. I know that not every man of God and woman of God is perfect. I know that. However, you don't ever step outside of God's umbrella of authority. Look, and I, I'm, I'm using a rhetorical situation right now. I'm not saying this is what's applying right now. But let's say that you're, let's say that uh, not your youth pastor, but let's say a different situation. Another youth pastor who does not have a good relationship with somebody else. And like, ah, you know, maybe this youth pastor is just jealous. That's not your situation. Don't, don't get confused. Even if they were completely wrong. Let's say if that person was crazy. Let's say that person didn't even pray, whatever. Even if they were completely wrong. What did David do when Saul was chasing after him and trying to kill him? He said, don't even touch a hair on his head. Don't touch Paul. That's God's anointed. Even if your youth pastor was wrong, and I have no indication that they are at all, that's God's anointed. So you're not touch, you're not touching what they're saying. You're not, you're not going against that. Don't do that. The first step of trying to figure out whether or not you're able to do this, because it's a leadership position. The first step is to see if you are able to be submitted. If you're able to be submitted, God can use you. If you're not able to be submitted, God ain't going to use you. You might use yourself. You think it's ministry, but that's not ministry. It has to come under submission. 
That's so good. That is so good. There was a book I read a while back called The Tale of Three Kings, and it spoke. Oh, yeah. It was really good. I'm getting a lot of questions here. Um, so there's one about P7. Um, so we'll, we'll get to that one next. Um, and then there's some really personal ones after. So it says, my P7 club is a very small group right now. I'm wondering if you have any ideas of how to make my group larger. Um, honestly, the people that need to answer that question is, I would say, Brother Imani, and also some of these ones that have been successful in their own P7 groups. My, my inclination would be, and sorry, I said, I, I want you to answer this, Brother Imani, but my inclination would be, you, first of all, you've got to focus on the people that are there. Because if you've got something that looks like it's worth having, that's going to manifest itself in the people that you already have. And so somebody else from the outside will look and say, oh, I want to be a part of that. But if it's only about getting people from the outside in first, you got to build something worth having in the middle. So if you start there, it should. Is that OK? That's yeah. really good insight. That's really good. Yeah, I, I was planning to jump in and add on to that. That was really good insight. Um, number one is, you know, I know it's hard because we're such a statistics driven society. Everything's about how much are we producing and how much are we doing um, but if you could just, the number one, the perspective shift, if you could fall in love with the people um, that, as he's just said, that are currently present, that is the key. Because I promise you this, is if you don't have the, the passion or the burden for, I'm not saying you don't, I'm just saying this generally, for the one person you won't be able to handle 20 and you wouldn't be able to handle 30. You wouldn't be able to handle 40. So you want to just fall in love with what God's place right there. So that's my first thing is don't get so caught up in numbers. Um, and the reason we celebrate numbers is just because it's more people hearing the gospel. It is not an attachment to your self-worth or your self-esteem or your saying, you know, so you just trust with what God gives you because he knows exactly what you can handle. But some practical tips to, to grow your group um, is, snacks work really well um get high school students food they will come free lunch they're like man i i need to be there um number two um one of the things we did and i, I wasn't really we didn't have much food but um but one of the things we did is and this is a challenge we had are you speaking to people outside of your comfort zone and i don't want to get too much into this but for me, when I was initially starting my Bible club in my high school, I was only talking, reaching people that I wanted to reach. And my my little group, my friends and my people that I was one, the cool crew, whatever that means now, it doesn't mean anything. And I was I didn't realize it. Uh, and God was like, the people that are actually the hungriest aren't the people you're seeing. Can, are you willing to step out of your comfort zone? Are you willing to talk to the kid who's alone by themselves at lunch? And there's no one around them, just one person. You have no clue the doors God can use and open through that one individual that might be a social outcast. So speak to people outside of your comfort zone, get food there, get announcements. If you can get announcements in the school, get it out there in the school, um, get it a part of the school system, get a part of what's going on. The teachers know about it so they can get out the word. So those are some few practical tips. I could go on, on and on and on and on. And obviously pray fast, see God's face, ask God for increase, ask God for more harvest. My prayer always was God. You know, I wasn't really praying for a crowd. I was just saying, God, because we started with three friends when I was in high school. I said, God, if you could just send me one more person. I had no clue that that would be over 80 students one day. That wasn't my plan. So just pray and and and, and seek God. That's obviously the, the most important thing, and he will provide the harvest. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. But the most important thing of it all is don't get your attached to the attendance with your self-worth. Celebrate what God is doing right now because it's a success story. Um, here's a great question. It says, it was messaged privately. I struggle so much with wanting to be someone else. And I get so mad when these thoughts come up. How can I help this? That's really transparent and good. Wow. There will be some things that you will find yourself developing in. And 
what hurts sometimes, and I'm going to start off with a negative. Don't worry, it's going to go to the positive again. What hurts sometimes is you will find that there are certain areas of your life that are not worth, or let's like, let's say personality that are not worth developing because we think it's what's going to make us happy. See, when we were young, I talked about those four personalities that the first personality test we took, the sanguine one was the fun personality. That was the life of the party. That was the person that everybody was going to laugh at. Everybody wanted to be around them. That's, that's, you know, everybody knows that type of person. Um, I had a group of five friends. Only one of us was actually sanguine. Only one of us. But when we took the test, all five of us scored to be sanguine. None of the rest of the four were. Like, or four of us that were far from sanguine. Only one of us was. We all wanted to be that. What happened was when you're young, you're like, you think you know what you want to be. And don't worry, this is not like an old guy telling you, hey, you know, you're not going to learn anything until later. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that with experience, you're going to find out that there's so much more to be happy with yourself about if you allow yourself to. If you're constantly saying, well, that's what I'm not. Look at what your giftings are. It's important to find out what your giftings are. And a good way to find that out is to ask somebody else. Say, hey, you know, I know I'm not the funniest person in the group, but do you think do you see anything that I've got that maybe others don't? Do you see something that's good about me that maybe I'm not seeing? And what you're going to find is that you have giftings that you probably have ignored because you don't think that's what's going to make you happy. But when you try to live out the life of somebody else, what you find out is you're never comfortable, you're never happy. And what's worse is you're never completely successful in the way that you want to be. But if you develop who you are, who God made you, you're going to find yourself not just comfortable, but you're going to find yourself successful because God gave you those giftings for a reason. He did not make you something else. Uh, just thinking, well, maybe they'll turn into that. No, no, no. God gave you some gifts and abilities. Look, I had to get a little bit more outgoing just to do my job. However, uh, God helped me to see that the things that I was always insecure about, and I had plenty to be insecure about, um, I was bullied all throughout junior high and up until up until my junior year in high school. Um, the things that I was so insecure about, God helped me to see the benefit in some of those things. And to say, if you would actually develop the things that you see as a weakness, um, but I've told you you're better at that, it'll help you tremendously. Let, let me give you an example because I'm kind of speaking in generalities. Um, my favorite preachers to listen to are the rowdiest preachers around oftentimes. They're the ones that go crazy. Yeah, Brother Amani knows that um, I'm good friends with um, two, the two former uh, youth president and youth secretary in the district, uh, Adam Shaw and Kelvin Shaw. And Adam is, uh, he's, I told him before, he has the, the personality of like a bowling ball. He'll come into the room and just destroy it. And everybody, you know, like he gets up into a pulpit and it's like 90 miles per hour immediately and blows the place up. I love that kind of preaching sometimes, you know? Um, that's not me. And I used to hate the fact that I wasn't because my dad was that way as well. My dad is that way. He has so much passion in his preaching. I used to think I'm not that way. I hate that about me. I'll never be this. I'll never be that. I hate it about me. And eventually I found out when I stopped trying to be them in the pulpit that God said, I know you're not that way, but try this. Try this gifting. Try the way that you uh, like to say things. And I might not be the loudest person in the room, but God has a place for me. And you're going to find plenty to dislike about yourself. But I would say, stop looking at every one of them as a negative and say, why does God have this? Why does God have me this way? Wow. I'm sorry. This is a long-winded response, but Brother Amani, I'm, I'm going to, I got to say this Thank one. Um, I'm very open with our people. With our, I was open with our youth and whenever I speak somewhere else. I've had a, like a, an issue with depression since I was 11 years old, wow. uh, strong depression. I was, um, I had a plan to commit suicide from about the age of about 15 to 17. I had a plan. I had a plan. No, nobody, nobody knew about the plan. I had the plan. I was trying to work up courage to get there. And then I prayed through God, uh, Holy Ghost filled my life again, but I still struggled with depression and I never understood why. And sometimes I would get weary and I found ways to, to combat it, but it still came up and I would, I would struggle with this and say, God, why am I still dealing with this? And I, again, I kept finding new ways to fight it. And my wife has actually been tremendous in helping me. She says, Hey, 
I can see it coming on. You need to do that stuff that you do to, to combat it. And so it's kind of a trigger to help me to get to that place. But um, what I discovered was the only reason I've, I've been fortunate enough, despite my nature, I've been fortunate enough to speak at a number of youth camps now. And what I've found it every single time I talk about depression with them, I have students come up to me in private later and open up about their stories. The only reason they're even coming and talking to me is because of this thing that I've seen as a weakness in my life since I was 11, because I dealt with it and because God has helped me through it. That's the only reason that they feel comfortable coming up to me because they know that I understand what you might see as a weakness and as a battle right now, God is going to use that for his purpose. You might not see the way that it's going to work yet, but I promise you at some point, God is going to open your eyes and say, you know what? You dislike this about your life, yourself for so long, but now because you've endured and because you've relied upon me, I can use it for my glory. God has so much about you that he's going to use. Wow. Wow. That's just some real stuff. This is why, you know, when I compiled a list for speakers for this, these calls, I, for the Ryan Dean was on it because I just know how real he is and authentic. And I feel right now as you're speaking that someone's being ministering to, ministered to. So thank you for being so authentic. Here, here was the question. We got a couple more time for a couple more. It says, what can I do to stop burnout? That's a good question. The way to stop burnout is, um, first of all, God instituted a Sabbath for a reason. It's not just so he, you can focus on him it's that you're renewed in him and restored in him so that there's got to be a time of rest but i would say um if your group is growing especially you're going to find yourself getting more and more invested and more and more demand of your time what you have to learn to do and you got to learn how to do it early is delegate you can't do it all yourself you need people and not only do you need people around you to help you you need somebody who is capable to fill in for your position when you're gone that's what delegation really is. It's not about people gathering around you to help you. It's about people being equipped to do the job that you do. And if you get people that you, you can delegate things towards and you can hand it off to them and you can say, look, you do this, you're going to find yourself not being burnt out so often because uh, it, becomes, uh, it becomes a team effort. There's a reason that Jesus sent out the disciples two by two. He didn't say, hey, all 12 of y'all go in different directions. He said, hey, go, go in pairs because you need somebody. So you've got to learn to do that. That's really good. That's really good. Brother Dean, one of the two questions to wrap up is that when I start instituting ask each speaker is, what has been in your journey in ministry, the toughest thing that you have experienced? And then the last question will be, what's the best piece of advice you could give a young person tonight? Okay. I'm going to have to think about that second one a little bit more, but the first one's actually a pretty easy response. The greatest hurt in ministry is when you pour your heart into somebody and they end up, even if it's, if it's short-term, it's usually not as, as much of a problem, but if it's a long-term relationship and then they eventually turn away from you and turn away from God, it's devastating because there's so much of you poured out in that person. And what happens is uh, sometimes they never come back. And sometimes they might even badmouth you behind your back after you, after you poured out everything into them. You've loved them. You've prayed for them. You've helped them. You've, you've you know, taken them out for meals and bought this for them and did that for them. And then suddenly one day you look back and they're just saying nothing but negative about you. That's devastating. But a lot of times, it's not every time, but a lot of times, that investment that you made is a long-term payoff. And so it's devastating in the moment, but if you keep the faith in you also, you keep praying for that person and you keep trying to minister to them. Sometimes you can't invest all of your time into somebody that doesn't want you. That's Jesus even said, if they don't accept you in this town, shake off the dust from your feet and go on. But a lot of times that seed that is planted a long time ago, you know, there might be some storms in between the way, but eventually it could still pay off. And I've seen that, I've been blessed to see that actually uh, quite a few times, even with people that I, I was like, man, God's, God's going to do a miracle to keep this person uh, in his grace. But all of a sudden you see somebody come back and you see that long-term payoff. Uh, what was the second question? Brother Best piece of advice. And that was, that was great insight. 
best piece of advice you could give a young person tonight? Okay. Um, everybody looks to talent. Everybody looks to ability. Everybody looks to personality. Everybody looks to aesthetics. And so if somebody looks the part, sounds the part, acts the part, all that, people admire that. But what absolutely works greater than anything else is discipline. I don't care how funny you are. If you don't have discipline, it's not, it's not going to work. Um, there's, there's a time when you start a ministry. Uh, if, you, if you started one of these clubs and it's, and it's starting off great, eventually your enthusiasm, just because of human nature, your, your enthusiasm will start to kind of fade a little bit. When that happens, sometimes you're not going to, sometimes you'll find enthusiasm again, but sometimes it's not going to be there and you still need to do the job. At that point, what sustains you is discipline. What sustains you is still getting up in the morning and praying for that group. What sustains you is still getting up and saying, you know what, I, I'm going to get into the word of God, even though, nah, you know, don't do that. No, I'm, I'm getting, speaking of Adam Shaw, I'm getting a, uh, I'm getting a message from him right now. I wonder he said, I'm on church milk again. <laughs> That's fantastic. What was I saying? Yeah, it's, it's discipline. You, you have to maintain. See, I don't even have discipline and I look at my notifications. You have to maintain discipline every single day. You will not feel like it. And ministry will absolutely, no matter what precautions you put in place, you might be a master delegator. Doesn't matter. Discipline will be required so much more often than you think. Forget the tap. The talent's one thing. You can build on that, whatever. But discipline is up to you every single day. It's discipline. Yes, sir. Thank you so much, Brother Dean. And guys, we are at the end of tonight. And thank you for speaking in trial. I hope everyone tonight you've you've grasped to the words that have been said and um, just to take to heart what God is doing on the inside of you. Don't be concerned about others. But that that piece on discipline. I, if someone who has been in the in the, in the boots on the ground in P7, um, that sometimes, you know, there's been many stories of people getting the Holy Ghost and baptized, but there's sometimes, especially in your teen years, you want to quit and throw in the towel. But if you just keep, if you just keep going and keep that discipline, you keep showing up, you keep doing it. You know, there's some miracles in the Bible that just took place because people were there. And so if you keep showing up, and you just keep doing what you need to do, as tired as you might feel, as drama might be going on in your family or whatever, I promise you, God will honor that discipline. Thank you so much, Brother Dean. Thank you so much for everybody that is here. We will be back next month and stay tuned for our guest speaker. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us on this P7 podcast today. We hope that you feel inspired to unlock your faith, unleash truth, elevate Christ, and serve others in your home, in your church, in your community, in your school. Uh, if you want more information about Project 7 Bible Clubs, uh, visit p7clubs.com, and we've got incredible resources ready for you right there.